Welcome back to the program. Even amidst concerns about the impact of cattle on global warming, the disgrace of industrialized farming and slaughterhouses, and the increased worldwide population that has sworn off beef, it's still very much a part of our diet. And perhaps it should be. But is there a better, more sustainable, more humane way to process that beef and bring it to market? In what too often seems to be a world of black and white thinking, can we find a middle ground, a way in which beef is healthy, sustainable, humane, and actually good for us and the environment? That's what we're going to talk about today with my guest, Nicolette Hahn Nyman. She's previously served as a senior attorney for the Waterkeeper Alliance, running their campaign to reform the concentrated production of livestock and poultry. She's gained a national reputation as an advocate for sustainable food and production, and she's the author of a new book entitled Defending Beef, A Case for Sustainable Meat Production. Nicolette Hahn Nyman, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I love that introduction you just did. That was terrific. (laughs) Delight to have you here. First of all, I want to begin by talking a little bit about your own personal journey. You became a vegetarian in college, and uh, you looked askance for a very long time on on meat in general, beef production specifically. Talk about your own personal experience. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember quite distinctly when I decided, you know, when I swore off beef. And it was when I was in college, freshman year of college, and I was a biology major, so I was. I was already very interested in nature and I, you know, as a child and even in high school, I'd been involved in environmental causes and I felt like I was, you know, an environmentally concerned citizen of the world and I was studying biology in college and was kind of hearing everywhere that um, the production of um, meat in general, but especially I remember beef being talked about as being particularly resource intensive. And I remember in college encountering um, brochures and things that said that beef was the leading cause of deforestation in the Amazon. And that was kind of the thing that pushed me over the decision on that because I felt if I really wanted to be a good environmentalist, I shouldn't eat beef. And then I was also uh, quite convinced that it was bad for your health anyways. So it was a good decision for several reasons, I thought. And how far did you go? Did you become a vegetarian? Did you become a vegan? What form did it take? Yeah, at the time, um, I remember quite distinctly that I, I uh, swore off beef first, and I didn't eat any beef for about six months. And then I was thinking, you know, it, this isn't hard to do. I might as well just give up all meat. And so I gave up at that point, uh, kind of by the end of my freshman year, I had stopped eating all meat. I always continued to eat dairy and eggs. So I never became vegan, but I became vegetarian by the end of my freshman year in college. And as you learned more about what you had done, as you learned more about the reality of beef production, talk a little bit when your views not necessarily began to change immediately, but when they started to open up to new ideas. Well, I just kind of was firmly ensconced in my thinking that, you know, meat production was sort of inherently too too resource intensive and was inherently environmentally damaging and didn't spend a huge amount of time worrying about my decision or thinking whether it was right or not. Just continued in the vegetarian diet for a long time. And then I was hired, um, I worked as an environmental lawyer for the National Wildlife Federation and I was hired from that job to work as Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s senior attorney for the Waterkeeper Alliance in New York. And uh, that is a, that's a, um, a group that works with local 
water protection groups around the United States and around the world. And Bobby Kennedy was seeing a, a major problem in many parts of the United States that he felt was not being addressed by either governmental agencies or by environmental groups. And that was the pollution coming from the concentrated livestock and poultry industry. So he actually asked me soon after I started the job to take that on and turn it into a major national campaign for the organization. Now, I was a little bit reluctant at first because I realized that that meant working full-time on manure, and that didn't <laughs> sound very fun to me. <laughs> but, but once I began learning about the issue, you know, I went and visited communities first in Missouri and then in North Carolina that were very affected by uh, large concentrated hog and um, poultry operations specifically at first. And uh, I was really shocked by what I saw because the water pollution was incredibly obvious, Local citizens had been documenting it, and you could just go and witness it, actually. And the odor problem was tremendous, and so it was having very detrimental effects on, on sort of community cohesion and on the quality of life of a lot of citizens. And then I learned about, you know, the condition that the animals were living in, and that really, really bothered me. And so I was actually really happy to take on that job. And initially the job was really just reinforcing my feeling that the vegetarian diet was the right choice. But as part of my job, I was also um, visiting farms and ranches that we were hearing about that were doing a really good job. And I began to think, you know, maybe I had oversimplified this issue a little bit in my mind that, in fact, um, you could do livestock production in a way that not only wouldn't be environmentally damaging, but might actually be environmentally beneficial. And, and I began to see a lot of these farms in different parts of the United States. And that's actually how I met Bill Nyman, because he was the founder of a network of farmers and ranchers around the country that were doing things very, very well. And I, uh, by the time I left the Waterkeeper Alliance job, I really had uh, accepted the idea that, that there was very uh, beneficial livestock raising, and then there was very problematic livestock raising. There were two different, you know, two very different models that had very different environmental implications and very different animal welfare implications. So, uh, when Bill Nyman proposed marriage to me uh, a, a little while after I left that job, um, I actually um, was very. Um, I had a very favorable impression of him, and you know, I got to know him well in the preceding couple of years, and uh, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that I found problematic to marry someone who was involved in livestock raising because I thought what he was doing was actually really beneficial. And then I moved to Northern California, and um, got uh, initially didn't imagine I would ever get involved in the ranch itself. We we our ranch is in Marin County, um, in Bolinas, and we're right on the coast, and uh, Bill's been here. My husband Bill has been here for a long time, several decades, and um, and I've not been here for 11 years. And um, I initially thought I would just practice law and you know continue in my environmental law work, but I was so interested in what was going on on the ranch, and I got more and more involved in it the the more days I spent here. And I never ended up applying for any legal jobs. Actually, I just started working on the ranch. And so that was the the way a vegetarian environmental lawyer became a cattle rancher. <laughs> I want to talk about it before we get into the environmental pluses that, that you discovered along the way. Talk about it from the animal welfare perspective and the humane aspect of this and what you discovered about that. Well, 
One of the things I really liked about working for Bobby Kennedy was that he's very passionate about a lot of issues, not just water quality. You know, the job that I was doing really was a water quality attorney. Um, we were bringing lawsuits under the Clean Water Act and so forth. But he he has much a much broader focus. You know, um, social justice issues and and definitely very strong passion um, about concern for the animals. And so, the work that I did even at Waterkeeper Alliance was really looking at this issue very holistically. And part of what we found so troubling, we did a lot of work in conjunction with animal welfare organizations because we we shared their concern that the sort of modern industrialized way of raising animals is inherently uh, unacceptable from an animal welfare perspective. And this is especially true for uh, pork operations, the you know the places where they raise the pigs, um, chicken and egg laying operations and dairy operations, almost all modern dairy operations are total confinement. Now here in in Marin County, where I am now, there there are a lot of wonderful non confinement dairy operations, but the vast majority of the dairy production in California and in the United States today, the cows are in continual confinement, and that's absolutely true for uh, the chickens raised for uh, for eggs and the chickens raised for meat and for turkey and for uh, for uh, pigs as well. So uh, I was very troubled by the way those animals live. They were continually kept in very crowded buildings, never outside, um, you know, never, never even exposed to sunshine or fresh air or given the opportunity to, you know, exercise or engage really in any sort of normal behaviors that an animal would normally engage in. And actually, it was really at the beginning, uh, at that job, um, it was the beginning where I started to realize that actually beef cattle had a far um, better existence than the cat, the animals in the rest of the food system because beef cattle are raised outdoors and um, the mother cows almost everywhere in the world, including the United States, live outside on grass. And so they live pretty natural lives. That's true of the bulls as well, and that's true for the calves. It's really only when they are usually typically about a year old that they'll go into a feedlot. But even once they get to a feedlot, this is in the conventional beef industry. Obviously, not everybody Mm -hmm. does this, but this is the normal way in the United States now. The, The beef cattle then go into a feedlot, and that is a a much less um, desirable situation for an animal to be in than being out on grass. But even in a feedlot, um, the cattle are much less crowded than you know other species of animals are in a typical modern confinement building, and they're outside. You know, so they really still get to move around, and and they're you know they're in the sunshine and so forth. So it's um, it, even the sort of the, the most troubling parts of the beef cattle industry, to my view. Are, are a lot less problematic than the rest of the animal food system. So that's the first thing that I realized, actually, when I was working at Waterkeeper Alliance. Um, animal welfare is a real concern um, throughout the whole animal food industry, but it's not as big of a problem in the beef industry. And one of the things that you talk about is that in your operation and in other small family farms, the whole process of slaughter is a very different process than it is in than it is in these large industrialized slaughterhouses. Well, what we do, um, my husband is, you know, is really a pioneer in the, you know, in the sort of mm-hmm. um, better way of doing things in the meat industry. And one of the things he's always insisted on, he um, 
my husband is Bill Nyman, the founder of the Nyman Ranch Network, as I mentioned, and and he he's always felt that the animal should have uh, a good life from its birth all the way till its final moments, and that in fact you could do everything right for the animal's entire life, but if they are afraid. Um, or if they're you know experiencing sort of fear or panic at the moment of slaughter, um, you can really undo the value of all the work that you've put into producing you know this beautiful healthy animal, because animals that experience fear or stress at slaughter, um, it's actually there's actually very good recent research that shows that that meat is um, less desirable from an eating quality and may even be less safe to eat. So he's, he believes that um, both for ethical reasons as far as, you know, concern over the animal's experience and also just from the meat quality and safety perspective, the experience at slaughter is incredibly important. So a long time ago, um, I don't know precisely the year, but it's been a couple of decades ago, he established a protocol in all of the meat that he's connected with um, that that uh, the people who raise the animals are actually physically present at the slaughter for every single animal, every single time. And so that's been a kind of an absolute uh, dogma that we have adhered to. Um, and my husband left the Nyman Ranch Company seven years right. ago, and we started a new company now called Beyond Ranch. And we, you know, that was a, a, a foundational tenant right away. We, you know, we, we, we now raise heritage turkeys and grass-fed beef. And uh, my husband or one of uh, his business partners is physically present at every single slaughter every single time. One of the ways in which you have found that basically this kind of farming, the kind of farming that you do, really enhances biodiversity. Yes. Um, what's so important is my book is really about grass. And actually, I talked about grass in my first book, Righteous Pork Chop, as well. But this book, the second book, Defending Beef, is really, that's the underlying thesis of the entire book. And what we've done in our whole agricultural system is to sort of migrate away from grass. And I'm arguing that we need to go back to grass. And the reason for that is because when you get away from grass, you need to do. You need to use chemical amendments to add fertility. You need to um, use pesticides and other chemicals to control pests, and uh, and you know fungicides and pesticides and all that sort of thing. And when you're talking about the animals, the the, the grazing animals that you're raising, you need to grow crops to feed them if you're not raising them on grass. And there are many environmental problems with raising crops. So um, there's uh, the idea is that when you have grass, um, when you have continual grass, like we do so much of the, the far west is covered with California, especially there's a huge amount of natural grasslands here. And that p- presents the opportunity to um, to actually use grazing animals to maintain a natural ecosystem that should be there and actually to keep a, a, a continuous vegetative cover on the ground, which is the most protective thing you can possibly do for all of the soil and all of the in- incredibly significant below-ground life that's down there, um, which is really kind of the engine of the whole food system, is that subterranean environment that's going on down there. And then... Um, 
all of the wildlife, you know, whether you're talking about sort of the mic- on a microscopic level or the, you know, everything, you know, the elk, you know, whatever size animal you're talking about, um, it all goes back to that question of having this healthy soil environment and having um, a, a productive soil that produces vegetation for all the other animals to um, to live live off of. And when you raise cattle or other grazing animals, you can actually use those environments um, without plowing, without scraping the earth of its of its natural, you know, protective vegetative cover and without digging down into the earth and disturbing those subterranean environments. And there's actually um, very good research now showing that that is the optimal environment in which um, not just to generate soils and to prevent soil erosion and to keep water to hold water in, but also to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. So there's a lot of, um, there's a great deal more appreciation of the need to have grazing in general and especially to have well-managed grazing as part of our food system. What is the impact that we're finding with respect to concerns? You touched on it a moment ago, but in a larger sense, concerns about the impact on climate change and carbon emissions. Well, it's interesting. My book, the very first chapter is the climate change discussion because it has become um, sort of almost conventional wisdom nowadays that in many circles, um, especially I hear it, you know, among environmentalists, that uh, that beef cattle have too great of a toll, or all cattle, you know, the cattle for dairy as well, but just the cattle in general, ruminants in you know, in, in general category and specifically cattle, are problematic from a climate change perspective, and so much so, in fact, that you know, we should just get rid of them now. Okay, that, that is to me absolutely throwing out the baby with the bathwater because, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago you really can't produce food uh, off of any other kind of, uh, in any other kind of situation that's as environmentally beneficial as you can when you have grazing animals. And uh, not only that, but you sort of lose the opportunity to, to use the domesticated animals as surrogates for the wild animals that once covered the globe to maintain these grasslands that, that are really should be there on much of the earth. So um, so when you look at the climate change issue, it's really important. Um, the discussion is always very myopic, and people talk specifically about the methane emissions from cattle and as though that should be the end of the discussion. Well, really, that's just the very beginning of the discussion because there are so many impacts, you know, good and bad, that you can potentially have from cattle. And it, the question really should be looked at holistically. So my argument in the book is that First of all, the, the, the issue has been really exaggerated. Um, in the United States, fossil fuel burning is by far more than 90% of the, the global warming gases are from fossil fuel burning in the United States. All of agriculture, according to the current data from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, all of agriculture causes about 8% of global warming gases in the United States. And cattle, all of the cattle, dairy and beef cattle together, cause about 2% of the global warming gases. Now, 2% is not something that we should ignore, but it is certainly not the size of impact that you often hear talked about. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, there's, there's word on the street that it's more than half of the global warming gases are caused by cattle. There is no credible scientific agency in the world that accepts that number, okay? The numbers I just stated, 
8% in the United States for all agriculture, 2% for cattle. Those are the official numbers. Those are the real numbers. Now, what about that 2%? Okay, so that is almost entirely from the methane emissions, and, and that's because cattle uh, basically are able to recycle their um, vegetation that otherwise couldn't be used for human food production but would naturally decompose anyways and emit some methane. But cattle do that on a kind of a continual basis. They're consuming cellulosic vegetative material, basically mostly grasses, and their bodies are breaking it down. And when they break it down, they emit methane. Um, that's why they emit methane. So it's kind of like they're doing this amazing, miraculous process in their bodies with um, inedible vegetative material and they're turning it into meat and milk and there's this byproduct of the methane. But there's a lot of research, um, you know, the rice industry in the 1980s was the number one cause of methane in the world, the number one cause of human-generated methane in the world that was recognized as a problem and there's been a lot to uh, done to address that and those emissions have been brought down significantly. Uh, so rice is still a major methane emitter, but it is much less so now. And and my argument is we should do the same thing with cattle, and in fact, it is happening. There is research all around the world in agricultural schools um, looking at the methane emissions and calculating, uh, 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 quantifying it, and figuring out specifically what causes it and what can be done to prevent it. And I cite a number of different scientific studies from different universities in my book um, showing that the methane emissions can be quite substantially reduced in a number of different ways. One of the ways is through uh, good pasture management, for example, and methane emissions can be reduced by 25 to 30% when you do better pasture management. So there are, there are a number of other ways I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. But um, the point is the methane uh, issue has to be looked in a much broader context, and it is not an intractable issue. So we really have to get beyond that, you know, really simplistic thinking about that. Is there an impact that is beginning to really seep in on the cattle industry in general, the larger industrialized part of the business, as a result of the work that people like you and your husband and other small ranchers are doing, is that beginning to have a broader impact? I think so. Um, you know, there are a number of indicators that would suggest that that is the case. Um, one thing is that there's um, the, the, the fastest growing segment of the beef industry is the grass-fed beef sector, it's only about 5% of the beef that's produced that is totally grass-fed. You know, as I mentioned earlier, a large number of the cattle in the food system are on grass, even if the offspring from those animals eventually end up going to feedlot. So that's kind of a, an important side note that I want to reemphasize. But um, the, among the cattle that are going entirely on grass, um, it's about 5% of the industry now. And that's a much bigger percentage than it was a few years ago. So that that's growing and there's more and more interest in it. There's a professor called Dr. Alan Williams who has been working, he's a actually has a Ph.D. in animal genetics, but he does a lot of consulting around the United States in grass-fed beef. And I heard him saying in a talk recently that 10 years ago he would give a talk uh, at, a, you know, at a ranching or farming conference and he would have five people in the room, and now he's speaking to rooms with a 1,000 people in them. So, you know, he feels 
that, and I, I, you know, and just anecdotally, I would say the same thing. I find it in conversation that more and more people in the agricultural community are really interested in um, learning about optimal ways of grazing, you know, making sure that the, the methods they're using for grazing are the most environmentally beneficial, and also the, the whole idea of keeping cattle entirely on grass. That idea has um, has gotten gotten a lot more traction um, within the agricultural community, both because of the environmental issues and because of the market opportunity. You know, there's more and more uh, awareness among consumers that um, beef and dairy products that are from uh, animals that are on grass are healthier and safer. And that really is the most fundamental thing that is driving this change, that there's this consumer realization accompanied by a consumer demand that's continuing to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, often when people, you know, hear about these big issues, uh, they were, you know, when you, when you hear about climate change or when you hear about, you know, whatever huge, you know, uh, world concern you're worried about, you think, God, what can I do here? You know, <laughs> and the nice thing about the, you know, the issues related to agriculture and the food system is that, probably the single greatest impact on what happens in it is what consumers are doing. You know, uh, they do drive a lot of the shifts that take place. We, you know, not they, we all, all of us who buy food and who eat are, are consumers. So it's really a we, not a they. Um, but it is, it is we um, who drive the change. So um, when people, uh, you know, I, I, in my first book, Righteous Pork Job, I say this um, really clearly and explicitly. I say, you know, you, you should ask where your food comes from. You know, when you're buying um, meat or, you know, dairy or eggs, you know, tr- try to find the, the kind of food that matches your values and the kind of agriculture that you want to support. And if you can't find it in your local grocery store, then Leave your grocery store, you know, go to, um, go to the farmer's markets, go to the farm stands, go to the local CSAs that, where you can buy food directly from farms. Um, it's there, you know, especially here in Northern California. I mean, it is, it is absolutely there if you look for it. What about the rest of the country? Are, are you beginning to see availability in those places as well? Certainly here in Northern California, there's an abundance. What about the rest of the country? Yeah, well, you know, there are, um, my husband and I are both Midwesterners, actually. I'm from Michigan and he's from Minnesota and we, you know, we both, uh, we go back there quite a bit. And to me, that's one of the most heartening things that's happening is that I'm, you know, I started working on these issues 12 years ago and when I would go home and talk with my, you know, family members and friends from that community in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I'm from, people had some interest in what I was saying, but just really didn't have any connection to it. I mean, they, they weren't involved in, um, you know, trying to rebuild their food system, basically, in their, you know, in their community. And that has changed so dramatically. Um, I I actually was just invited to give a series of talks in Kalamazoo um, next spring. And there's, according to the people who are inviting me, and I think it's true, there's a lot of excitement about me coming there because there's so much happening in Kalamazoo on, on sustainable food issues. And so when I look at, um, you know, parts of the Midwest that are, 
you know, a long ways away from the coasts, basically, where the, you know, the change on a lot of issues seems to start. Um, that gets me very excited because I know it's, it's really um, percolating throughout the United States. And so I have, I'm very optimistic, actually, about a lot of this stuff, even though, um, you know, there are big problems and there's a huge amount of change that needs to occur still. Uh, I see a strong desire for that change, especially, again, among the eaters. You know, people mm-hmm. want to have food that um, was raised in a way that they, you know, that they feel uh, is in conformity with their values and that they know something about its origins. And, um, and so there's more and more interest in learning where food comes from, how it was raised, and also just trying to rebuild a food system that people feel connected with and that, they, um, that they're a part of. Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, her book is Defending Beef, The Case for Sustainable Meat Production. Nicolette, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, It was really my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.